Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Beach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Beach State Pandemonium. Good evening and welcome to Beach State Pandemonium for Thursday, July 20th, 2017. This is Michael Norris along with Jerry Oates and special sit-in guest host, uh, Bo James. Uh, Bo has joined us for a very special reason tonight. I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way. I've been struggling with uh, for the last two weeks on how to make this announcement, but I'm just going to jump out there and, and make it. With the loss of our dear friend Jay West and with the fact that uh, Bobby Simmons has uh, – taken on a job that has him working on Thursday evenings. Uh, we are going to uh, put Peach State Pandemonium, at least this uh, version of it, to rest. Um, uh, we've all talked about it. Bobby and Jerry and I all talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And, uh, Bo, you'll understand this. We've beaten everybody in the territory four times and it's time <laughs> <laughs> time to do something else, but uh, but that does not mean I, what I've done is I basically told Larry Goodman that uh, that we're all stepping down, and uh, hopefully at some point uh, Larry and the uh, people at uh, at the Georgia Radio Network will put something together again and uh, do something later on. If not, uh, there are ten years worth of archives going all the way back to February of two thousand eight. When this show was originally started with uh, Les Thatcher, Rich Tate, and Mike Sempervivi, um, and I wholeheartedly recommend that you, you know, if you have not heard those shows at all, or if you've not heard them in a while, go back and listen to them. Uh, Bobby and Jerry have been doing this for uh, almost nine years. I've been doing it for. Uh, almost eight years now, um, or almost seven years. And, uh, of course, when I was uh, having all my medical issues, uh, Bo stepped in and filled in for me and and did it for several months. And so uh, there's a lot out there. Uh, The PSP Facebook page that I maintain, I will will keep it up, but it will become an archive page, um, basically with links and photos of people who have been guests on this program over the years and uh, links to those particular shows. But but like I said, I, I wholeheartedly uh, recommend that if you have not heard the shows going back to the days of, of Les and Rich and Mike that uh, you do and uh, go back and listen to those and, and all the other incarnations that this show has gone through over the years. Uh, a lot of great stories out there, and we're going to go out uh, this week with a bang. This is going to be one of the best shows that uh, that uh, I think we 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 would have done or have done in our in our long history. Uh, our guests tonight are going to be Charlie Platt, 
who was the voice of Southeastern Championship Wrestling on the Mobile, Pensacola, Dothan Inn for many years. Charlie did our show several years ago with us, but uh, we're going to have him back on and our special guest tonight, and I am so happy to finally get this person on. Uh, Ron Fuller will be on with us. And uh, Ron has, is in the midst of a couple of different projects, finally, finally putting together the untold history of the Welch family and the many branches of it going all the way back to his grandfather, Roy Welch. Uh, Ron's got his own uh, podcast now. He's done two episodes, and I, I've listened to both of them twice, and they're fantastic. Um, and he's going to continue to do this. I mean, he's going right down to almost minute by minute, starting with how Roy got in the business and all that stuff, and it's it's very informative. Just in the two episodes that, that uh, he's done, I've learned stuff, and I thought I knew everything there was to know about the Welch family. But uh, And then Ron and Charlie are working on a project as well that I'm sure that they'll go into, but... Uh, uh do want to pass on uh something else before we talk about uh talk about Dale Mann. Uh I just heard a little bit go from uh from Bobby. Scrappy had his, his heart surgery this morning, came through it fine. Uh he's in his room, he's doing doing very well. So keep your thoughts and prayers going for him because he's gonna have uh, a bit of a recovery to get through, but I'm sure he will uh he will come through it fine. So, anyway, Jerry, you got anything you'd like to express as far as the wrap up of of our time together? Well, I've enjoyed it. You know, uh, I really have, and I appreciate when Rich called me and asked me if I interested in doing it, and I accepted. And it's 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 been a lot of fun. It's you know we had a lot of great people on there, and I never knew some of the most dangerous people in the world I'd wrestle. I didn't know it till I heard them talk about it, but <laughs> that was in their mind, of course. You know, since you've been with us, Mike, and, you know, when Les and Rich first started all this, and I mean, like you and I talked about, I have nothing else to say. I mean, you know, my era, you know, people don't even remember, you know, a lot of the guys, and I've said everything I can say about what I did, and guys I met in the places I went and I just, you know, and this I talked to last Tuesday and, you know, I said I'm I'm kinda glad. I you know, it's it's you, you get to where you just repeat, you know, and it's yeah. you know you know, I did it a long time and you know, how long can you talk about it? But I, you know, I've enjoyed it and, and, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, I I'm I'm glad it's 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 come to an end for me because I you know, I just I really can't. I, I would only be repeating myself after <laughs> all the years. That's and, true. Uh, but, That's true. But I, I, you know, I, I loved every minute of it. We did these shows. I, I loved every minute of what I did. But uh, you know, do I miss it now? No, I don't miss it. <laughs> I just, I mean, it's something I, I don't know anymore. So how can I miss something I don't know? But I enjoy it. I hear it. you. It, it's, it's. I'm. I, I'm I was looking forward to tonight. I think. I think um, <clears throat> we uh, we managed to have uh, 
a lot of people on that uh, a lot of people have never thought about reaching out to. I know uh, uh, when Bo uh, was filling in for me, he had Jimmy Valiant on, and what a great show that was. Um, all the shows that, that Bill Bowman and Joe Turner did with us, oh, man. Uh, some of the guys that did our show, including those two, uh, are no longer with us. Uh, others being Gorgeous George Jr., both Fargo's, Jackie and Donnie, um, Dutch Savage, um, El Mongol, so many guys that, uh, that you know, did our show. Ron Starr just recently, um, the, last, the show he did with us was the last interview he ever did. And, uh, and uh, just, it, it, it's, it's, it's been a fun ride, but like you, I'm, uh, it's it's at times was hard for me, and I'm sure Bo experiences too. And when, when he was filling in for me, it's it's hard to think of a subject that you hadn't already beat to death. And uh, yeah. uh, you know the guys from our era that to reach out to to get on and do our show with us are they're becoming fewer and far between. We're losing so many of them at such a such a quick pace, but uh, that's why I think tonight's show is going to be great. Um, uh, you know, the, the Welch family, for those of us that were around all of them, um, they were notoriously thick on the kayfabe. <laughs> and, uh, but but Ron has uh, he's finally decided to, to open up about it, and I tell you, man, if there's ever a family that needed to be their history out there and hear the true story of it and, and you know, not all this revisionist stuff from the, the McMahons being the first family of, of wrestling and all that stuff, uh, which I'm sure Ron will get into tonight, but but how far-reaching that family went um, as wrestlers, promoters, you know, everything territory owners uh but well that's who you you, I, I you just, broke in uh, with them didn't you Bo? well yeah they had already sold the territory ronnie west and bob polk gave me my first job uh you know robert and jimmy were still there ron came in and out at that time but i mean it was their territory they had sold it to david woods but it, no matter you know like you growing up in mobile and me growing up in East Tennessee, this is Fuller Welch Golden family run yep. businesses, you know. So it's, you know, I was around them as a kid, and it's just what a. I look back at it now. This will be my 29th year being involved. Come October, be involved in pro wrestling, and I got to start so young around my childhood heroes, and got to work with just about all of them, and you know, and it's just it's been an amazing ride. And I want to take a minute real fast here. I know Bobby will be listening to this, and I want to. Thank Bobby. But I want to thank Jerry while I got him on here because I enjoyed my time sitting in the host chair on this show when you were gone, and I had a lot of fun with Jerry Oates and Bobby Simmons, and then Jay West come along too there towards the end of my my time of filling in for you, Michael. And Michael, I'm glad that you were able to get back up and going and kicking and screaming and able to come back and do the show for another run. That's uh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I still got a ways to go, but I, I'm I'm. Uh, I've lapped myself as far as how far I thought I'd get at this point, but uh, and uh, I'm I'm far from far from done. Uh, I'm, I might make a comeback. You never know. I still got my boots and tights. So, 
I can just get if I can if I can get Jerry to commit to being my tag team partner, at least stand in the corner. <laughs> we can do like the McGuire twins. We won't even fool with climbing in and out of the ropes. <laughs> we'll just stand there. <laughs> yeah, oh good. man. You, you you did a good job, but when you when you sat in and and you know you you're very knowledgeable of of uh, things up up your way and other places, but you know I, I've I've reached into my rope of what I could say or add to anything we've done. You know we we had a heck of a run with it, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Yeah, Thank did. you, Jerry. Plus, I got to pull one of the best ribs I've ever pulled on Jerry Oates while doing this show, hundreds of miles away from him. You know, we had a T-shirt, special T-shirt delivered to him, and and Bobby Simmons kept <laughs> kept swearing he was. It took it took me three hours too. to photo. I got mine hanging up here in the office. I'm looking at it right now. It took me three hours to Photoshop him into that picture and put the Oates Brothers Jim shirt on 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 the McGuire twins. <laughs> well, you did a great job. I'm telling you. <laughs> So I, 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 you know, we could have, I could have gone off this tonight and never knew you was a culprit in this. So. <laughs> nah, I know. Thanks for being honest. <laughs> I, I, I had to take credit for it. I've hid well, from it long enough. Now we're, now we're going out. I got to take credit. <laughs> well, we, it, we've talked about now it. Now, if we can just find a bunch of, get, get them mass produced and uh, get us a punch drunk <laughs> boxer to sell them for five dollars a piece. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm sure I can find one with my learning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, that same guy may still be hanging around Kansas City. He could be. That was in Wichita, actually. Was it in Wichita? <laughs> yeah. Wichita, Kansas, like the it. home of Sputnik Monroe. I remember, yeah, I remember that like it was last night. But, <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess Bo James sticking his nose in that T-shirt he designed is kind of is equal to that. Him giving my shirts away. <laughs> Bobby was yeah, for sure you were going to come after us. <laughs> but you but you but you know what that, that's what I enjoy about the show stuff like that you know the the stuff that people never knew that went on you know it is kind of behind the scenes stuff and. You know, that 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 was a fun part to me, listening to guys with yeah. stories like that, you know, not about who they beat or who they didn't beat, you know, we all really didn't care about that, but the the stuff that's was entertaining to me, fun stuff. Now I really got something to talk about, Bo James now, so I tell you one in a joking way, Bo. What one of the best stories told in my time of sitting in the host chairs when I had Terry Garvin Sims on, and he told the story of Kevin Von Erich climbing the tree in Oklahoma. That was one that I think of often. So, if if, if they've not heard that, that's well worth going back and finding the archives of that one. Well, guys, our we have been joined by our guests. Uh, First off, uh, as I said, the voice of Southeastern Championship Wrestling, Mobile, Pensacola, Dothan End, uh, and local wiregrass legend of uh, the Dothan, Alabama area, Mr. Charlie Platt, and 
the one and only, no matter what his brother Rob says, the one and only, the original, Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And what a privilege it is to have Mr. Fuller on with us. Ron, i got to say off the bat, before I forget about it, I have to thank you for something that you did for me that you probably don't know that you did for me or have forgotten that you did for me. You kept me from going to jail in Selma, Alabama in 1981. <clears throat> yeah. You were running a spot show there, and I worked, I, I, I worked the opening match with Mike Jackson, and one of the spots that we had was we were doing a crisscross, and he was shoulder tackling me, and, and I would sidestep one, pitch him out of the ring, uh, go out after him, hit him across the shoulders with a forearm, and then beal him across the floor. Well, prior to the matches starting, uh, Captain Green, the uh, Methuselah of Selma, Alabama, the oldest living sheriff's deputy, sheriff or whatever he was, police captain, came to the Hills dressing room, said there'll be no fighting out on the dressing room floor or out on the the ring the arena floor. We've only got two deputies here, and it was him, and I think the the other, the younger fellow was. See, Captain Green was about 147. I think the younger fellow was 116. But uh, so Larry Brock was doubling his uh, ring announcer referee that night. So Larry happened to be in the the heels dressing room. I told Larry, I said, go over there and tell Jackson we're not going to do that spot because I'm not going to run the risk of going to jail. So he went over there and came back and uh, said, no, Jackson said, go ahead and do the spot. I said, okay. He was calling the shots and everything in the match. So we went through the thing, you know, I sidestepped him. He went out of the ring. I hit him with the forearm, beeled him across the floor, got back in the ring, drug him back in the ring, whipped him into the corner, and went in after him. He beat me with a with a Russian leg sweep. One, two, three, I roll out of the ring, headed back to the dressing room. Next thing I know, I'm in handcuffs. They have arrested me and are charging me with uh, inciting a riot. So evidently word got back over to you in the other dressing room, Ron, and you talked them out of it. I ended up not having to go to jail in my in my candy apple red uh, wrestling boots and red tights in Selma, Alabama. So I, I, I never did get a chance to thank you, so I'm thanking you now. Well, you're welcome. You're welcome very <laughs> much. Uh, you know, I, I've seen those kind of situations before. Uh, that's the crazy stuff that goes on in wrestling sometimes. One time in Kentucky, I had I had five guys who got arrested out of the Hills dressing room, and they all ended up down in front of a judge that came in with his robe on and one of those hats that hang off the side of your head, got the little ball on it like he was asleep. <laughs> and uh, and uh, two of them were wearing masks. Two of them in front of him were wearing masks. And they think the boys all got a $118 fine, all five of them, from the guy. <laughs> And he said, uh, he said after he fined them, he said, uh, the real reason I find you guys is because y'all got me out of bed. He said, this would have been a lot cheaper, but y'all hauled me out of bed, <laughs> and I'm going to stick it to you. you know, so, so, you know, I'm glad we could get you off. I'm glad I could get you off because uh, that ain't a good thing to end up in front of a justice of peace or something like that late at night. It's not good. <laughs> Well, I have to say that uh, I am so glad that you are finally deciding to tell the history of your family. 
Uh, I've listened to your your initial two uh, stud casts um, for uh, twice now, and uh, that has been a story that I have been saying for 20 years that needed to be uh, told. In fact, uh, at one of the, the Mobile reunions, when Lester was still alive, I knew he wouldn't open up because I'd been around him and, and Bobby and Don Fields enough to know that uh, kayfabe runs through the Welch family pretty thick. So, uh, but I, I approached uh, Jackie and Roy Lee, and I said, you know, if if you guys are ever interested in you know putting this in in book form, I'd be glad to help you out. And uh, I never never heard about it, but I or heard any more about it. But I'm so glad that you're doing this, especially in the format that you're doing it, because it, you know, everybody in the world's got a book out now, um, including Bo James, who's now working on volume five or six of his his series. But uh, the way you're doing it with with your blo- your uh, podcast and everything is is a fantastic format uh and i learned something and i thought i knew everything about the mobile territory you know that that there was to know but i I found out in listening to your first show that i always assumed roy was the oldest of the four original brothers but i had no idea that jack was the oldest yeah jack's actually the oldest one um, and he's a couple years older than roy and then uh herb's pretty close to roy's age about a couple years younger than roy and then Lester is 20 years behind the three of them. So he comes yeah. way, way down the line. Him and my dad are only about two years apart. So they they spend a lot of time together. We're real good buddies. And, yeah, that uh, Mobile Territory was really pretty amazing. What happened in Mobile back in the 50s is, um, you know, remarkable considering it was a small part of the country and not very populated they did some tremendous business back in those days. Yeah, you think about crew. the the, uh, the night that uh, Eduardo Perez won the Gulf Coast title for the first time. They had 12,000 people in Ladd Stadium in Mobile. The population of Mobile at that time was probably just over 70,000. So that's a healthy yeah. slice of your population in one place at one time. Yeah, it but, is. Uh, yeah, that, they drew some huge crowds there. Uh, Dad worked there with... Uh, Mario Galento and uh, yep. and Joe Lewis was refereeing, and they had thirty thousand plus uh, in uh, Lad Stadium. So I mean, they they really drew some monster crowds over there in in the late fifties. Pretty amazing. Um, so, are you guys doing good tonight? Doing great. Doing great. Um, like I said, I would. This is our. This is we've decided. Uh, Jerry and I and uh, Bobby Simmons uh, uh, have been doing this this particular show for, I've been with them for seven years. They were around uh, a year or so ahead of me. Uh, I had some health issues for a while, and Bo filled in for me for several months, but we have decided that this is going to be our last show, and we're going out with a bang, because I, I decided uh, um, I can't compete with a stud cast. I don't have a stud cast, so I'm just going <laughs> to give mine up. So. Hey, Ron, Ron, do you yes. hear that? We'll get, to, we'll get to kill a territory tonight. All right. <laughs> yeah, y'all are really going out. I didn't know that, guys. That's, that's kind of crazy. 
No, after all these well, years, that's pretty, it, pretty crazy. Yeah, we've we've been doing this a while, and we've we've had some tremendous guests on. But I, I have a feeling that this one's going to be uh, one of the best. Um, I, I just Charlie and I were talking last night, and and one of the things that that I and I'm sure you know, but uh, you may not. But you know, a lot of people give Sputnik uh, Monroe proper you know recognition for integrating uh, Memphis. And all that, but one thing that, that a lot of people don't realize is when when your dad and uh, grandfather came into Mobile and took it over from Joe Gunther, that they had been uh, running the Shrine Auditorium building from the, the 1930s. They'd use that same building. In fact, that building used to be down on Water Street in Mobile. It was called the Wharf Arena. They moved the whole building to where it sits even today uh, behind the uh, Shriners Hall on Government Street. Well, when the Shriners had it, they told Buddy he could not let black fans in. So he was there for uh, uh, several more months, but then he finally worked out a deal with uh, um, the National Guard Armory, Fort Whiting, over on Brooklyn Field, and that's where they moved to, and they were there another 15 years before they went to the big auditorium. And uh, your dad did that because there were so many, you know, so many turning away so many people. He was seeing a lot of yeah. people walking down the road. So Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, that there's a big, big, a big black population in Mobile, and uh, it's not changed much. I mean, I can't imagine trying to have an event it's pretty amazing how things have changed, isn't it? Now they, oh, now absolutely. they couldn't even uh, you couldn't even dream about doing something like that, and uh, you know that's certainly not right to do that. And I'm glad to hear that Dad was a part of moving out of the building to uh, to provide that to provide the sport to to blacks and whites. So that's the way it should be. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn you and Charlie here loose, but I before and I'm I'm running off at the mouth, but I'm just you know I'm so uh, excited at what you guys have got going on as far as the Welch family and everything because this has been, you know I consider myself the 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 Gulf Coast historian as far as that territory from when um, Buddy and came in through Lee and until Lee uh, sold out to you. Um, that's where my scope is at that 25-year period. But there's a few names that uh, have long been associated with the Welches, and I just wanted to kind of get uh, your take on where they fit in. And, and one of them, Charlie and I talked about last night, and I kind of know the story about, but uh, Rocky McGuire, he, was, he seemed to be everywhere your dad was. Yeah. They were really good friends, uh, Rocky McGuire and my dad. They grew up, uh, I guess they were grown guys, and out of the war after World War II, ended up in Dyersburg, Tennessee, where a whole lot of, it was like a wrestling factory there. A lot of wrestlers came out of there. A lot of guys trained there. Uh, Roy originally had his territory set up there in Dyersburg for years before he went to Nashville with it. And uh, Rocky was a real good buddy of dad's. They they did everything together, and when Dad went to Mobile, he took Rocky down there and and put him in a position to. They were promoting towns. Rocky helped him with promoting towns, and I think over the years that Dad was there, Rocky gained a lot of experience and 
how to do it and how to how to run business and and uh, I guess when uh, Dad sold out to Lee and we went to Memphis, then uh, Rocky turned. I guess he he, he really managed the uh, the eastern end of the territory uh, all the way in, especially yeah. in the Dothan area. Spent a lot of time a lot of time in that area. But Rocky's wife and my mom are still best friends. Still talk to each other this very day. Her name is Delma, great lady, and a great mm-hmm. family. Uh, Rocky had a son named Jimmy McGuire. We refereed Jimmy, for us yeah. in the early 80s. Uh, great family, really, really nice people. When I came down to take a look at the territory in 1978, uh, Rocky took me around. I stayed with Rocky for a week down here and uh, went to Dothan, went to Panama City, went to Mobile, went to several different towns, and uh, Rocky was the person that I really I spent most of my time with. I spent one night with Lee and the rest of the time pretty much with Rocky, and uh, I really loved old Rocky. He was a great guy. Yeah, he was. I know he um, He even worked for you for a little bit. He, was, he did the ring announcing for the house shows in Mobile after Jack Bitterman passed away. Um, yeah. Rocky was doing yeah, that, he, and that, he, that was... Yeah, he was. He was really. He was a part of that. He was a part of that Mobile territory for many, many years. He was a face that was uh, in a lot of places and a lot of cities. And uh, great guy, great guy, and a great family. Uh, and they're part of that old Dyersburg connection that that a lot of the Welch family uh, looks back to. That's where I was born, and Rob was born there. Uh, Jimmy was probably born there too, as a matter of fact. So it's just, uh, you know, it's been uh, kind of the first place of a lot of talent. Um. Another name I wanted to throw out at you that seemed to to always be around. um, In fact, I I don't know if he lived on the ranch when your dad had it, but he certainly lived over in Loxley uh, on the fields where there's Charlie Carr. Yeah, Charlie Carr. I love Charlie Carr. Charlie Carr taught me to work, taught me to wrestle. Not really to work, but he taught me a little shooting, and uh, taught Charlie taught my dad a lot of shooting, and uh, and he probably wrestled Roy, uh, no telling how many times uh, in Roy's life. So Charlie goes back three generations with my family, and Charlie lived with us in Georgia when we lived just south of Atlanta in a little town called Locust Grove. Uh, Charlie lived on our farm there, and and we had a ring in the backyard, and every day we worked out with Charlie. Uh, He was a great shooter. He was really, really tough. And uh, he used to teach my dad and Lester and uh, all three of the Fields boys, and uh, Charlie liked to drink because he had lost his wife in a car accident when he was really young and and in the business, and they had a car wreck, and she got killed. And he never got over her, and he drank a lot. And they used to go get him to work out in the mornings in Nashville when they were all young boys, and he would be drunk. He'd be so drunk that they had to carry him from his hotel room down and put him in the car, and they'd get him to the ring, and they'd roll him into the ring, and he would just lay there. He wouldn't have tights on. He'd have underwear on. Dad was telling me these stories. And he said that, that they would take turns jumping on him. He was dog drunk. He couldn't stand up. And they would jump on top of him, and he would roll them around and wrist lock one of them. They'd scream. He'd let them up. And then another one would jump on him. 
and they would just take turns jumping on him, and he would beat every one of them. And Dad said after a couple of hours, he'd sweat so much that he'd get sober, and he could finally stand up. He said he could beat them all drunk. He was he was drunk and could beat them all. And I got a couple other stories about Charlie. Since you mentioned Charlie, these are good. Dad told me this one. In Mobile, in about 1956, Charlie was there working, and Charlie stayed in one of the hotels downtown, and they loved him in the hotel. He had a great personality, and he would get drunk, and he... One day they called Dad up, and he said, they said, Mr. Fuller, you need to come down here and get Charlie. And he says, well, what's wrong? And he, he says, well, right now he's standing in the hotel lobby. He ain't got nothing on but his underwear, and he won't let anybody in or out. And Dad said, you kidding me? And he goes, no. He goes, please come down, and we don't want to have him arrested, but he, we can't do business like this. He won't let anybody in the front door or out of the door. So Dad goes down and gets him and takes him up to his room. Another time they called him again and they said, we're having trouble with Charlie, and he was drunk again. And they said, he's, he's messing with the, the girls that are, are cleaning up the rooms. And he would get on the elevator. He would stand there. He got up on the third floor or whatever floor he was on, and they would he would see the elevator coming up. So he would push the button for it to stop on his floor. And the first time it stopped, and there was a girl that was in there about to go up to the next floor or whatever, and uh, he had nothing on but his underwear. And when the door opened, he went, sabi like that. <laughs> and the girl pushed the buttons really fast, and she went on up. He watched the elevator, and he went on up, right? And uh, when he got to the sixth floor, he saw it coming back down, so she had panicked. She was, now, So he pushed the button again, and that's going to stop on his floor again. This time he took his underwear off. And went to the door, and uh, he said, Sabida! That was his word. That was his old word. So I was like, God, and they, just, they never arrested him. They never called the cops on him, but hey, he was a great guy. He really taught me and my brother uh, a heck of a lot, and I owe a lot to Charlie Carr. I just, uh, he's one of my favorite people in wrestling. In fact, on my stud cast, they asked me a question. They said, who's your two favorite people? Or your favorite favorite uh, personality that you've ever met, big time personality, and your favorite wrestler. And my favorite wrestler choice was Charlie Carr. Pretty odd because I've been around all kinds of wrestlers, but you know Charlie was just a he was a real character and a great personality and very tough. He was he yeah, was really he a, a great shooter. He had a hand in breaking, you know, helping a lot of people get into the business as far as teaching them and everything. I, I knew about all three of the Fields brothers. I didn't know about Lester, that he had worked with Lester. And I didn't know he, oh, yeah. he was still around to work with you and Robert. Yeah, he was, he was around there that day with Lester. Yeah. Go ahead, Charlie. Can I say, yeah, I want to say something about you bring up Lee and, and something that still goes on with all of us folks that have been associated with the business. And it was Lee's idea mainly, and he, he, he donated the land, the building to do it, is a reunion we have. And I think as we get to stages in life, in my case, open heart surgery, and, 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 and Mike, with, with your help, all the issues you've been through, and with all the friends we have lost, this kind of, uh, this, this having Ron around to tell the whole story of how this all took place and, and what a strong brotherhood the, the Welch Fields, Hatfield, 
Golden. Who did I leave out? All that, that, you know, everybody's aunt and uncle. Whoever was a part of the business, Rocky, and the whole crowd created in this area, you'll never see that again in the history of this world. Nothing like no. this has ever happened before, and it'll never happen again. And and Ron has so many stories. I asked him on, on an interview we did for a little other project we got we might talk about a little bit later on. I said, how was, how was the – can you imagine – Jerry, Bobby, all y'all in there on the show, can you imagine going to a Welch family reunion and there being alcohol served? What might have happened? <laughs> you, know the, you know the funny thing about that? Yeah, nobody drank. Very few people well, in the family drank. Well, the, the reunion in Mobile, the first year, the rule was made, no alcohol and no drugs. And yet, nobody much except me and a couple others are still alive that were that first reunion. And I can tell you why. That's true. Don Fargo showed up with two forty-five caliber pistols. And Don had had some liquor and a little herbal medication. <laughs> and he decided... <laughs> that he didn't want Norville Austin at the reunion. So he starts firing shots up in the air, and, of course, Norville takes off and never did come back. He was at the first one, but never came to a second one. The other part of that story involved me, and I'm fessing up to something. Eddie Sullivan and I were doing things we might not have been do- ought to be doing, so we kind of got off to ourselves in a... Cadillac and we're making circles around Lee's racetrack. We forgot <laughs> what we we were in the ozone layer at Mobile International Speedway <laughs> and, and after after that particular reunion rules and regulations were made and the only two people ever turned away and made to go home were Ricky Gibson rest his soul. And Mike Boyette, rest his soul, they showed up a few years later and put on some really good shows. But you look back at, at the history of of the Welch family. I won't say this and turn it back over to Ron. You look at Roy, he might have had some strong-handed ways of taking over a territory. Look at uh, Lee, how much he was he was liked and how much he cared for the guys. In a lot of cases... Ron, at this recent reunion in Dothan, and I know this, Arn Anderson teared up almost to thank Ron for Ron's push that he gave him at the beginning of his career. And in the, uh, you read, Mike, I'm sure you all read Arn's book. He said Ron Fuller broke tradition in what he had always heard in the wrestling business by giving him the best payoff he ever had the week he left the territory. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things in the family history, and you're going to have some guys that complain about this and complain about that. That's the nature of this business, and that's the nature of business in general. But when you look at it, this family created not just a dynasty, but they were a group of geniuses that has been handed down from generation to generation that created an industry that until everything got broken down by we know what, 
employed literally hundreds if not thousands of people. And the trickle down, as the Reagan called it, economics, all of your National Guard armories that got rent money, all the civic clubs that got concession money, all the wrestlers that worked up and down the roads maybe three, four nights a week part-time, made money, your referees, everybody that was making money and the tax structure off the business to the commissions, to the states, to the counties, to the cities, all went away almost overnight. It's a, it's, it's a shame, but I have learned so much about and studied the Welch family like you, Mike, and like others, that this is something I'm glad Ron has decided to do. I'm just excited to be a little part of it and getting to do some of the interviews from time to time because it is truly mm-hmm. a a story that needed to be told and oh, needs to absolutely. be told from from start to finish. Now, yeah, and that, well, that's kind of what I'm. That's that's my whole concept of what I do with uh, this with this website and with these podcasts is is I want to tell the story from Roy all the way to the end, all the way through, and uh, tell it in as great a detail as I can with the number of stories about the individuals. And I'm lucky I grew up around him, and he was he was he took me on a lot of trips, and uh, he talked to me. We talked of going and coming. And he was a phenomenal storyteller himself and had lived a phenomenal life. And I remember all those stories, and I remember my dad's stories. And and I come from a pretty damn unique family. There's no doubt about that. And you know, I just uh, I'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to tell it. I enjoy it. I enjoy doing these studcasts that I do. And uh, it's really, really, it, it gives me opportunity to to I, I I remember things that I had forgotten myself just simply because. I'm telling the stories, and I want to go back and tell it. And, in fact, I want to tell you guys one before I forget it. This is about the Fields Boys. Uh, we had a farm. My dad had a farm between Loxley, in Loxley, Alabama, about halfway between Pensacola and Mobile on Highway 90. And the Fields Boys ended up owning that farm. We sold it. Dad sold it to him when he left. And those guys came out one time, I remember. I don't remember them coming out a lot when I was a kid, but I'm sure they did. And they came out one time when Dad was in his dynamite phase. He would find boxes of dynamite, and he wanted to blow up stumps, and he wanted to blow up fish in the lake. He wanted to blow up ditches. He just went crazy with dynamite. It was a, I call it his dynamite phase. And uh, and I remember one time we went down, the Fields boys were there, and he had pushed a big stump up with his bulldozer, but he couldn't get it out of the ground. So he had saved it for them to come. And they had, they had dug a big trench all the way around the stump. It was about four feet deep. And me and him and the Fields boys got down inside the trench, and he, we took an auger, and we augered back into the stump way back, he stuffed in three sticks of dynamite, and he put a short fuse on it. And uh, and I'd been with him, and we'd done a lot of dynamite. I asked him when he cut the fuse, I said, Dad, that's awful short. And he goes, I know, it ain't going to take long, right? So we, so he lights the fuse, and me and him, we take off because we know this is going to be a bad deal. And the field <laughs> boys, the field boys started 
they started instead of running, one would run, the other one grab him, pull him back in the hole. And they were pulling each other back into the hole, and we're 100 yards away down there. And Dad screams at him. He says, it's going to blow. You know, and they they finally took off running. They were laughing and playing with each other. And uh, <laughs> when that when that dynamite went off, it blew that stump 300 feet in the air, and it knocked all three of them. It turned all three of them a flip. They hadn't got far enough away that it just the impact just blew them over. And a big, they all were laughing and giggling. I was like, what in the hell are these guys talking about? You know, I mean, they, crazy, crazy boys, man. Those guys were crazy. Yeah, hey, oh, the, the, I want to jump Kelly in real fast. Tell me about flying with uh, with Lee, and Lee never had a pilot's license, but he flew all over the place. <laughs> oh yeah, Lester. Oh, you know, Lester flew too. Lester flew like yeah, yeah everywhere, man. Lester flew in. T- I've got stories, uh, unbelievable stories of flying with Lester, and Lester was all calm, and you know he was never. He, he, Lester never got upset. He was always so low key, and when he got in his airplane to fly, uh, he'd be—he would go to sleep. Uh, we used to fly from San Juan, Puerto Rico, when I was first started working in Florida, to to the Bahamas. Uh, it was like a five-hour flight, and uh, Lester would go to sleep. It was after the matches, so he would go to sleep, and there'd be nobody in the co-pilot seat. And there's five or six of us in the back of his twin-engine, he had a twin-engine plane, a King Air, and. Uh, and he'd go to sleep, and one night he goes to sleep, and we're all up. When he went to sleep, everybody else woke up. We was all like, oh, God, man, Lester's asleep. You know, <laughs> nobody's flying the plane, right? He set it on autopilot. And one night we're flying along, and, and the plane starts going, and it starts nosing over, and we're going down, right? It's like, so we all scream, Lester, Lester, Lester. And he just turns around, he kind of just, He's laying his head on the seat, and he just looks back at us, and he reaches down there, and he turns on the auxiliary tank, just flips a little switch, and he goes back to sleep. He puts his head down, and the plane's still nosediving. <laughs> Sounds like it's going to crash, and then it finally started going, and it finally got, its, got the gas back in the engine, and it climbed back up. It's like that was flying with Lester was like uh, you never knew what the heck was going to happen with him. You know, he's a great pilot, but he sure never got excited about things. And Lee was probably the same way. I never knew Lee had yeah. a plane. But if he yeah, flew with no license, uh, you know, and they, I've flown with a lot of guys, crazy guys in my business, in my years in the business. Uh, I flew with Ron Wright. If you can imagine Ron Wright in an airplane, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty scary damn sight right there, man. I have some Ron Wright stories about airplanes that were just chilling. I mean, crazy stuff. <laughs> like, God, I'm lucky to be here. You know, so any of those guys that flew an airplane, though, they were deadly. They were, they were, they were definitely putting your, putting your butt at risk. My dad got himself a plane, too, toward the end. Uh, in about 1985, he got a plane, and he had a big farm that had a runway on it. And he had to put fence around the the runway because he had cows in the field and he couldn't land the plane because the cows would run across the dam to his landing strip so you know he had to fence in his landing strip and 
I mean, it, those guys, they, man, any wrestler, most of those wrestlers, Bill Watts, I've flown with Bill Watts. I mean, I've flown with Eddie Graham. I've flown with all kinds of wrestlers. It can be crazy. Did you ever hear the story about what Lester did to uh, Rocket Sputnik Monroe on one of those trips back from Puerto Rico? No. He, they were in the air, and, and uh <clears throat> Lester decided that they were gonna. They didn't have enough fuel to get back to uh, Tampa, so he spotted this island off the corner of his eye, and he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna land on this island. I'm gonna put you guys and your bags off, and lighten the plane up. That'll, you know, allow me to get somewhere to get some fuel." So he talked them into it. They landed on this island and uh, had just enough room to get the plane on there and get them off and turn around and get back on the air. Rocket said that when, as he looked at the horizon at Lester flying off, he said his eyes filled up in tears and he started crying. Sputnik looked at him and said, what's wrong with you, bub? And he said, we're going to die on this island. Nobody's ever going to know we were ever here. <laughs> he now said, just think, if something happens to Lester, you know, and he doesn't he doesn't make it to wherever he's going, <laughs> nobody knows we're here. There's no trace of us on that airplane because we took everything out. He said he just about the time he got in a good good squall, here come Lester, come back and got him. <laughs> everything turned out okay. Oh, man. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you. I've talked to Roy about this. Lester had had two heart attacks and was still flying a plane. Uh, and, Ron, you can verify that. He'd already been through a heart attack or two and was still flying a plane. And there is somewhere on the Internet, all the stuff is out there, there's an interview, a shoot deal, with uh, our good friend, the late Bill Moody, uh, Paulie Barrett, Percy Pringle. And he tells a story about when he first got his start and ended up in Georgia, was doing some Florida-Georgia stuff, Lester was still a part of the business. And he said Lester would fly them, a group of them from Florida, up to do the Georgia TV in Atlanta. And he talked about the plane was in ill repair, said it was smoking like a mosquito truck, and, and he and it was, you know scared him to death but but i do remember uh roy even saying that his dad still flew after having a heart attack oh uh, he flew i flew with him one time from from fort lauderdale to san juan that's one third of the devil's triangle miami to to uh puerto rico puerto rico to bermuda and bermuda back to miami that's your devil's triangle and so we're, we're we're flying one leg of the Devil's Triangle. We flew it every other week, and I was a, one of the young guys in the crew, so I had to fly in Lester's plane. The big boys like Briscoe and uh, Dusty and Dick Murdoch and those guys, they flew in the jet. But we flew seven hours, took seven hours, no bathroom, to fly from Fort Lauderdale to, to into uh, San Juan. And one of those trips... Uh, Roy Lee happened to be on the plane And Lester never said anything Ever on all these trips I mean, no, he wouldn't talk to anybody You could say, Lester, how's the day? How you doing today? He just, mm. he wouldn't even say anything So we're flying along on that trip We're five, mi- five hours into the trip It's starting to get a little bit dark And uh, I look out at the a- airplane engine On the left side of the plane Where I'm sitting by the window And it's black 
it's getting all black. I was like, what in the heck is all that? And I noticed we're losing altitude. So finally, the other guys are on the plane with me. We're playing cards. And uh, they're all looking out at that engine, too. And finally somebody says, uh, uh, you know, we're all looking at each other like, what are we going to do? And nobody asked Lester anything because they didn't know whether to ask him anything or not. And Lester turns around after after we've been watching this plane, this engine get black for an hour, and he goes, uh, hey, Roy, uh, break out that life raft. I'm like, we all go, what did he say? <laughs> We're all like, oh, did we hear him, man? You know, what did he say? We're all looking at each other like, what in the hell? And Roy Lee's back there scrambling around in the back of the plane. And so we're all scared to death now, like, geez, what's going on? So finally somebody gets guts enough, and they go, uh, Lester, uh, what's wrong? And he goes, uh, we're losing the oil pressure in the left engine. And he just keeps flying, you know. It ain't like a commercial pilot says, we're having a problem, please be seated and all that stuff. He's like, as little as he could say, you know, we're having an oil pressure problem in the left engine. And then we fly on a little for another 20 minutes. And uh, somebody says, uh, Lester, uh, can we fly with one engine? And he says, no. <laughs> Just one word, no. No, we can't. Right? So now we're down, and we're looking for islands to land on, and we're down and getting close to San Juan, and there's no place to land. And it gets dark. We're still flying. And he doesn't even tell us. He can't make it. We can't make it to San Juan. He lands on the the eastern tip of the island, and there's a strategic air command base where they have the big bombers <laughs> that go that drop the big A-bombs and stuff, right? And we land on that base because he, he, we can't make it. It's the closest base we got. They gave us permission to land, but he doesn't even turn around and say, hey, guys, we're going to land over here on such and such a place. He lands a plane. Well, we all think we're in, in San Juan. I'm sitting back by the stairs, and you turn the little handle, and you lower the stairs down. The plane stops. I get off, man. I can't. Oh, God, I'm so glad to be on a dry land. And I get off the plane, and we're surrounded by guys with machine guns. It's like, what in the hell? You know, we all get off the plane, and, and the whole plane's surrounded by them. And, and uh, we're looking at each other. I'm thinking Cuba. God, man, he's done land and turned around and we come back to Cuba, man. We're screwed. So we, they fix our plane. An hour later, we take off. We go to San Juan. We get there at 9.30. Match is supposed to start at 8.30. We go to the Huron Beach Thornhill Baseball Stadium. There's 30,000 people in that sucker. They still were there, sitting there, waiting on the plane. They just said, the plane's in trouble and it's going to take a while. And uh, so... Yeah, flying with Lester was a real trip, man. Always. I can imagine. Yeah, you know, we're supposed to talk about wrestling. I got a question for you, Ron, and I've never asked you this question at all, but it's something that hit me the other day. Roy, of course, stayed in the wrestling business all those years. Is there something genetically in the bloodline? Now, just... Listen to this for a moment. You worked full circle in the wrestling business. When you got out, you recreated yourself as a hockey promoter and team owner. Going back to your dad, Buddy worked every aspect of the wrestling business there was to do, following his father's footsteps. But in later years, I remember when he bought that uh, twin-engine Navajo, 
he was in the real estate business. He was creating little towns almost by buying up land and, and creating subdivisions outside of Atlanta, south of Atlanta. Lester, for an example, wrestling business. And then in 1980, he, in his shop there in Pensacola, in his home, he builds a tread plate aluminum toolbox. Folks started wanting to buy the things. He creates them, and all of a sudden, better built, which is a worldwide company, is is created. So yeah, the some, something yeah. in yeah, better built too. So there's something in the genetics of the family. I'm thinking, and guys, y'all, see if I'm right or wrong, that you guys just cannot stop working you have to be doing something and a lot of people in the family have at least wrestling business and then he took interest in the racing business and at one time was running mobile international speedway uh mike yep. i believe it was baton rouge michael and then he leased i the think track so yeah Jackson. and he he had uh he had part of five flag speedway with skippy wetchin over in pensacola and he also had jackson mississippi so he had another territory but it was racing. So there's something in the genetics of that family that has to be creative. Yeah, it, it, uh, you know, we, we, we come from a really strange background. Hell, after I got out of hockey, I got into ADT. That's I got into I had I had no damned, I'd never seen a security system on a person's wall. And I had a friend of mine says, Ron, would you like to go into a different business? I said, yeah, I ain't doing anything. I've been retired for a little while. Tell me about it. And he tells me about ADT, and I call him up. I go down, I, I interview with him. They say, yeah, you're good. You you got the smarts. We think you can do this. And uh, they give me a dealership in Tampa. They say, okay, go ahead, run this sucker. And uh Hell, I went in there not knowing anything. I'd never seen a security system installed in my life and uh, end up with 100 employees, the 12th largest ADT dealership in North America out of 1,200 in the nation. I was number 12 in size, and uh, that's after hockey, going into a totally different business and stayed in that for 14 years, longer, twice as long as I stayed, almost as long as I was in wrestling. So, you know, I mean, we just, we're right. You're right, kind of in a way, Charlie. We do. We can't just sit down and, and quit, you know. We we want to do something. Dad was a dad was a genius at buying property. He did it all his life. Bill, Bill Bowman used to say, whatever buddy, whatever buddy Fuller touched turned to gold. You're he right. said he could find somewhere, yeah. and I think you mentioned Locust Grove. He said he could find somewhere that was basically a desert. And before he was done with it, it'd be a thriving, you know, area of of, of the state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What he did in Atlanta one time in Atlanta when I was in a senior in high school, they were talking about expanding the Atlanta airport, and he had property all around Atlanta. He was buying land all the time, and uh, and they they put in the paper one one Sunday morning. I woke up and I said, Dad, look at this. It was a it was three different parts of Atlanta. They said, we're going to build a new airport in one of these three locations. And we looked at the locations, and he said, I'll be damned. He says, i got land in within two miles of all three of these. It's like, what in the <laughs> hell? It's like, I'm like, are you kidding? He goes, no, i got 100 acres here and 300 acres there and 500 acres over there. And uh, so then 
So then I said, what are you going to do? And he says, hey, he says, hell, he said, I bet I'm going to get a lot of offers because they're going to want to buy up this land in case they build the airport in one of these locations. So uh, he sold all three of the locations. He sold every bit of his land. And then the day he sold the land, the next Sunday in the paper, it said they've decided to keep the airport in the same location. Well, he had already made a killing then off of the land because they decided they were going to re- just re-expand the airport. And then he went. We lived in a little town called Locust Grove, and we had a 300-acre farm there. And he, so he went up to Atlanta, up to the airport area, and he found a big subdivision that had like 50 homes in it, and they were going to demolish the homes. And he found out. So who's going to handle the demolition of the homes and all that? And he says, let me move these houses. And the guy goes, are you serious? He goes, no, where? He says, down to Locust Grove. He said, well, you can't take the houses all the way to Locust Grove. they got roofs and all that. He said, hell, then help me figure out how to do it. They've had the police departments. They ran down the old highway to Locust Grove. They took down lights. They took. They did all of these things. They ran 50 houses. He bought 50 houses for practically nothing and built them, put them up on the home, on the place we had in Locust Grove, uh, put new siding on it, put new floors in them, and, and sold them suckers. It was like everything he did just seemed like it was just he had it figured out somehow. Hmm. Well, Jerry Oates, I know you. Uh, it's it's getting close to your cutoff time, but I just uh, I wanted you and Ron to compare notes. Both of you had the privilege of, of wrestling Lou Fez earlier in your careers. Oh, Ron, oh, yeah, you did better than I did. Uh, <laughs> I probably didn't, man. I probably didn't do any better than you did. Hey, it's good to talk to you, man. I haven't talked to you in how many years? Oh, I think the last time I saw you was in St. Louis. Jeez, it's just been a long, long time, man. Uh, long it's good, time. good to hear, good to hear your voice, man. It's been quite a while. Yeah, it's been a long yeah. time, and, and I remember working for your family, and you know, down in Mobile, and I enjoyed, you know, my times there, and and I wish you the best, and I hope your podcast you enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed doing this show, and. Charlie, it's good to hear your voice again, and I hope we talk again down the road sometime. Yeah, yeah, sure do. Uh, and you work with Lou too, huh? I, yep, I think I we do. probably, I think, I think we probably all work with Lou. You know, Lou, Lou was around. Lou, my granddad worked with Lou. My dad worked with Lou. I worked with Lou. Rob worked with Lou. Jimmy Golden worked with Lou. I mean. He's he like he's just around forever. Seems like he yeah, and, and I, boy, and what I'm, a what a class act he was too. I, yeah, and I, I'm glad to say that I I, I did look good morning. But guys, I've enjoyed it, Mike and Barry. I've enjoyed my time doing this, and I wish the best for everybody. All right, Jerry. I'll uh, talk uh, to you in a few thank days. You, Jerry. So. Y'all take care, Jerry, guys. Good to hear. All right, take good care, to hear you, man. You too, guys. Good night. Good night. I work, I work with Luke. Now, seriously, I got to announce one match with Fez, and you've got it somewhere documented, uh, Michael, because he came through uh, and at least still on the territory. Yeah, he did that angle with the pro when they, when they put the, the world junior belt on the pro. Kelly decided no, to do no, no, that, no, no, and they no. were bringing it. Was it later than that? No, this was. Yeah, it was late. It was in 76, latter part of 76. 
And I don't know if you remember, but in his retirement, he would go on vacation although he's retired, and he'd go through every mm-hmm. territory in the southeastern U.S. on his way to Florida on vacation, and he worked whatever. He worked Dothan. He worked the Farm Center in Dothan in either late 76 or early 77. Couldn't tell you who he wrestled. I was just in awe that I got to meet him and uh, get in the ring and announce him. And he was, as Ron said, class act all the way even into his retirement. You know, you look at how much the business changed through the years. You look back at some of these things on YouTube. Uh, wrestling too. Jody Hamilton, Johnny and Jody, and all those guys, 60s, 70s, into the early 80s. When one of the guys would go out and make an interview on TV, they had a coat and tie on. Mm-hmm. Remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That's the one. Oh, yeah. That's Lou did a lot. Yeah, oh, Lou, yeah, Lou always did. It's just I used amazing to go up there. How... Yeah, go ahead, Charlie. It's just amazing how we have digressed to what we have in the business today compared to, to how it looked television-wise. And uh, from from the 60s when I was growing up and all of us in this group were growing up watching it, as to, to what well, it was I mean, today, when, it was... When, you're, when you're world champion, wears a pair of uh, uh, denim skort and, and sneakers, you know, <laughs> what's that say for the business? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and you got uh, when I used to, I used to go up to St. Louis in seventy, seventy three, and seventy four, when I was in Florida, and I worked a lot with uh, with Pat O'Connor. Now Pat O'Connor is the guy that beat Lou. Uh, he they he took the title off of Lou, and uh, Pat was the same type of guy. He was he had that same class. He dressed really nice. He was a super great individual, a real and a guy of real integrity, uh, just a, just amazing what those guys in the, back in those days, the difference, uh, take Buddy Rogers as an example. There's another great example. Good-looking guy, dressed really classy, had the, all the skills in the ring, had the looks of a champion, and uh, and 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 was a champion, and just lived it. He was a living champion. And uh, it's just amazing about how things were back in those days as compared to where it's at now. Look look at Dick Dunn uh, and Don Carson, two legends in this market. Every time you look at an old picture of them and they weren't in the ring working or on TV doing an interview, they always had coat and town. Carson and, mm-hmm. and Dunn would style and profile. I mean, uh, they made it... <laughs> If you can believe style and profile was going on about it, but it, it, it's true. They would dress and, and, and buddy, and, and looking at some of the old pictures of, of your granddad, Ron, and Nick, and all those people associated with the promotion into the business, it was coat and tie. It was yep. formal, and it was respectable. Yep. Yep. It was a, it was a different animal. That's what it is. It's just a really different animal than what it is today, for sure. Well, Ron, if you don't mind, I've got a, a one of our regular listeners wanted to uh, get on and ask you a question, so let me get her on with us. She's from down down Charlie's way. 
Uh, okay. Melissa Tillery, you there with us? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, I'm just so sad to hear this is going to be y'all's last podcast. I really enjoy uh, listening to it every week. I'm really going to miss it because y'all, I'm going to be honest with you, there's not too many clean wrestling podcasts out there these days. Good point. And I know Jim Cornette, he knows a lot about wrestling, but he is so filthy when he talks on his podcast, I cannot listen to him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are. I agree with that. I agree with that, Melissa. There are a heck of a lot of uh, people that that don't uh, watch their mouth and watch their language. Uh, I almost get in that every once in a while myself. I notice I, I start to say some things. And oh, I you're try not to, as filthy as Cornette, Ron. No. Uh-uh. Oh, oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I saw Jim. <laughs> I saw one of Jim's the other day, and I was like, God, I saw the F-bomb dropped about ten times in three minutes. I was like, wow, what the heck can he do? What's he doing, you know? So, but Jim is a great guy, and what a great what a great personality he's got. He's he's really good in those things. He he's great at it. But um, you know, yeah, I agree with you. It's a, it's a shame that uh, that people aren't uh, aren't as as careful with what they say as they should be. I, I'm I'm really careful for one reason. I got a grandson that listens to my podcast, yeah. and I don't want him to hear me saying those type of things. So I'm pretty careful about what I say. Yeah, you would think these other people that have podcasts would think just like you. There's a lot of kids that listen to this. Yes, there my, are. My and, grand, uh, hey, Ron, my, my my special one is telling me to tell Mr. Ron he said hello, and he's five, and he listens. He thinks the sun rises and sets in Ron Welch. Yeah, he's... <laughs> Charlie, Charlie's little grandson named Pearson, he sent me a picture a couple of weeks ago. It was really great. He said, uh, he said, Pierce, uh, I'm going to send this to, to Mr. Ron. He said, give me your evil eye. And I'm telling you, that little boy did the best little eyes. I, I laughed my butt off. I was, look at that, man. He looks like a wrestler, man. He was great. Oh, so, yeah, you tell Pierce I said hello, Charlie. I'll sure. do it, buddy. Uh, speaking of hellos, I had originally ho- had hoped to uh, – have a full scale reunion. I was hoping to get Les Thatcher on with us, but Les is—he uh, started a new career at the age of seventy-seven, and he's—he's he's traveling tonight, so he wasn't going to. But he said to definitely pass along to Charlie and Ron his his best wishes and tell you guys hello. He is—he—I uh, uh, can't imagine how busy he stays. I mean, between his seminars and what everything is, else, I'm he? not. Sh- I don't know. He, I never did ask him about it. He just said he was starting a new career at, at, the, at his ripe old age, and he wasn't sure he was going to be able to, to do the show when I initially uh, approached him with it. And then earlier this week, he told me he was going to be on the road. So I'm not sure what he's doing. I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll find out at some point. Yeah, I'd like to know. It's been a long time since I've seen him. But I just want to tell Mr. Platt that he's my favorite comment, he, my favorite wrestling commentator. Him and Mr. Gordon Soley were my favorites. And what Thank I would not much. give, what I would not give to just turn my TV on a Saturday afternoon at five thirty again. God, I, <laughs> I would just, give, I would give anything. I hear but my, that but everywhere I go. 
And You're I finally right. got to meet you. I finally got to meet you, Charlie. Uh, the past CC, CCW reunion uh, that they had. Uh, it was just a pleasure to meet you, Charlie. I, I always wanted to meet you, and I finally did. Uh, I remember you very well. <laughs> okay. Uh, but my question, uh, Ron, is, is uh, yeah. I just want to ask, what is, what's the worst uh, injury you have ever had in wrestling? Geez, probably knee. Probably knees. You know, I've had, I've had three operations on one knee, and uh, you know, I just never could. After I hurt my knee the first time, it, it never really got well. I probably shouldn't have come back as fast as I did a few times, and I might have gotten past it, and might have gotten where I didn't have problems with it again and again. But that's you know, and I've I've had all kinds of injuries. I've I've had cracked vertebrae. I've got bad vertebrae and the fifth lumbar is really out. Been out for forty years, and you know, uh, you can't hardly be a wrestler without having a whole bunch of problems. But, yeah. You know, and going back to what Charlie was talking about, that reunion that Lee has, uh, every time I go there, I am just, I leave there praising the good Lord for what, how he's taking care of me because I see all these guys in wheelchairs and, and uh, you know, they got the, the dementia problems and everything else. I feel really lucky. At, uh, what kind of shape I am in after all the years I did it. And, and uh, my granddad, Roy, he ended up on a cane. He walked with a cane the last 20 years of his life, so I know he, he tore a hip up real bad somehow and uh, never really got over it. And It's just, uh, it's a, it was a tough business, and uh, it, it, you, you stay in it long enough, and you're going to have problems, that's yeah. for sure. You're not going to avoid them. And before did I go you on, ever, I just did, want to tell you, I just want to tell ahead, you, Ron, uh, uh, Ron, you have got, your uh, your podcast is my favorite. Whenever uh, you announced your first podcast, I was just like a little kid on Christmas Eve. I could not wait <laughs> to listen to it. Well, good. Why I did sure you hear this it. one? Why did you hear this week's, Melissa? You're going to be, uh, anybody that has got, they need to take time, block it off, Ron, tell them what time it is, because this week is going to get to the good, good, good stuff. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock on Sunday nights. Uh, I started trying to do it at midnight on Sunday, but I had, it's really big. It's really gone much bigger than I ever thought it would, and I've got such response. Last week, people were saying, can you move it any earlier? And So I'm going to start doing it at 8 o'clock every Sunday night. I'm going to release a new one. And this one this one is going to be about Roy and the bear and uh, his bear. He, did, he was the first one to ever train a professional wrestling bear. And his bear had all of her teeth and all of her claws, unlike all the rest <laughs> of them ever trained since. This bear had all the teeth and all the claws and uh, that just shows you what a badass Roy is, because how the <laughs> hell do you train a bear that's got its teeth and its claws? You know, that's, Carefully. that's remarkable, that, a remarkable thing to accomplish. And uh, so I'm going to tell that's kind of what my number three stud cast is about. It's, it's a lot of the bear story. i tell you, bear well, story, Ron, you may not have heard. You know, Billy Golden was terrified of bears, and when he uh, he was running Louisiana for Lee back in in the mid '60s, um, 
Nick Adams, or no, it wasn't Speedy had a bear down there. They had their own bear that Speedy had down there. And uh, they kept it chained up outside the office. They had a trailer that would, they used for the office in Lafayette. And uh, they kept that bear tra- uh, chained up outside that thing. And Bill wouldn't even step outside the trailer as long as that bear was out there. And, you know, until, oh. until Kelly, that was one of Kelly's main jobs was, was taking care and washing the bear and all that stuff. <laughs> well, I, I think it was Bobby Fields decided to pull a rib on Bill. He told Kelly, he said, move that bear, take him somewhere where, where Bill can't look out any of the windows and see him. You know, take him off somewhere. So Kelly did. And Bobby's running along outside the, the, the trailer, banging on the outside of the trailer. Bill, the bear's loose. The bear's loose. Bill would get up from one end of the trailer and run to the other one. And Bobby would run down there and bang on that. He's under the he's under the, the floor on this end. And Bill would run all the way back to the other end of the trailer. He said they kept that going for about 30 minutes. <laughs> they finally let Bill off the hook. <laughs> yeah, boy. I love Bill Golden, too, man. That's Jimmy's dad. That, he's my uncle, kind of. What a great guy he was. I got a bear story for you real quick. Dad and Lester trained a bear, and they were in Dyersburg, Tennessee, and they they would take the bear to work out. They didn't have a trailer to put him in. They put him in the back seat of their car, and they would drive down to the, play, the arena where they had the the ring at to put him in the ring and work him out and uh, one morning dad told me a story he said they were driving him down there on a sunday morning and he said there was a drunk standing on the corner there was only about four lights in dyersburg and the light turned red and they stopped by the by where the drunk was and he said the drunk was kind of staggering and he was looking and he said the bear stuck his head out the window Right and almost in the guy's face, and the big old black head, and the, he said the guy was looking at him like, "What in the hell?" And Dad says, "Hey, what? How you like my dog?" And he said, "The drunk says, I thought that was a bar." And there he was, like turned green. They drove off. You know, the guy was watching him drive off, like, "What in the hell?" Well, that's a real bear in the car. Dude, have a bear in their back seat, right? I mean. No, that's crazy. Those guys were nuts back in those days. That same bear they had in uh, had Lafayette. Kelly had him had him out one day and was washing him. And uh, Johnny Long was working down there as Bob Dalton. And uh, he come along and and was aggravating the bear. And he took the hose and was squirting the bear in the face. And Kelly said, "You not you don't need to mess with that bear." And he he said, "Oh, he's chained up. He's not going to do anything with that." He, the collar that was on him had, had gotten dry rotted, so he strained against it and popped the whole thing loose, and he chased <laughs> chased Johnny Long all the way across the street to a shopping center that was across the street from where, where the city office was. <laughs> that is a, one of the stories yeah. I got in, the, in my stud cast this week is my dad. I'm barely here because Roy's bear got a hold of my dad when he was about 12 years old and damn near killed him. And uh, mm. so I'm going to tell that one. I'll wait and tell that one on on Sunday. But, uh, you know, that's a good chance I wouldn't be here or Rob either because uh, he about got him big time. Mm. So those man. things were dangerous, man, really dangerous. You You're talking about earlier about your, your knee injury. Did you, uh, since you played basketball for so long, do you think you, you weakened your knees before you ever even got in the business from doing that? Well, maybe I played in college in Miami, uh, but I never hurt my knees until I got into wrestling. And uh, 
first time I ever hurt my knees was a match with Michael Hayes in Mobile, and 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 I just went out awkwardly and it popped. It sounded like a shotgun, and it scared me as much as it hurt because the sound was pretty nasty. And yeah, uh, I can you know, once you once you do that, you know it's it's, and uh, I just seemed to have continual problems with it after that. I never really got over it, and I used to wear knee pads and braces. I started wearing braces and whatever I could do to help it. But I worked with Lernie Led and guys like that that I saw wearing a lot bigger braces than I did, you know, and oh, I guess yeah. they got those from their football days or whatever. But, you know, it's uh, the knees are hard. Knees are horrible things. Uh, you can't ever get them well, and they keep swelling up, and they would drain them. I'd go get mine drained, and the doctor, I went to the same guy all the time, and he would he would pick the, put the big needle in there and, suck that stuff out and then he would say now ron i don't want you to be up on this for two weeks don't you go nowhere don't you wrestle don't you do nothing i'd say yes sir and then i'd be working that night i'd be in the next day i'd go back in and he'd look at it and he'd go whoa he'd go my what did where'd you go i said well i had to go to Birmingham or wherever it was he'd take the needle out and he'd do me again now don't you do it I mean I'd do that five times a week I'd go back in and he'd drain it again it was like boy what is wrong with you you know so you pay the price when you do that yeah speaking of, of leg now I had asked this for a question for your podcast but in case you don't get to it how did your dad come up with the fuller leg lock that all of you guys use? That was so unique and so I, – I can't imagine even attempting to try it. Uh, he did – that's a shooting move. It, it actually it actually comes from a if – if you're on your hands and knees, if you got a guy on your hands and knees and if you grapevine him in a grapevine, you just put your right leg, let's say he's on his hands and knees, you put your right leg – uh, around his right leg and, and between his legs, and then you hook it back into your own leg, into your left leg. That's what's called a grapevine. It's a pretty simple little deal. And from that particular move, you can beat a guy. You can make a guy give up 10 or 15 ways. But the easiest and simplest and the most horrible way to use it is you grapevine that right leg, and you reach back and get that right toe. And when you do, you know, it's so easy to break a guy's leg. You can break anybody's leg. Dad used to show it to people, and he would use one finger and pull it with one finger, and they'd be screaming like crazy. So you can imagine if you got both hands and you really want to break some guy's leg, you can either break his leg in the, between his knee and his, and his ankle, or you tear out his knee. And uh, so what he did is he figured a pretty way of doing it. You know, because if you do that in the ring and you and people see it, it's not impressive. You know, they go, geez, well, what's that? You know, how, how did that hurt somebody? So what he did is he figured a way to get it standing up. And you had to have long legs, and he had long legs, and I got long legs, so it was easy for me to do it. A short-legged guy can't do it because it's too, you got to have the long legs to do it. And you just do the same thing. You get that grapevine with a guy standing up. And you reach down and get that foot before you roll, and then you just roll forward, and he's got to roll back. He ends up on his back, and you end up on your back, and that was history. I mean, you know, it was a great move. It was a beautiful move. Oh, yeah, uh, it was a fantastic move. 
you know, and then nobody ever does it. Nobody ever could do it. You know, I was one of the few guys that could do it. I think Rob did it sometimes, but uh, I, I used to do it quite a bit in the early part of my career. I kind of got away from it in the end, but it's a beautiful move. And that move when you're shooting with somebody, that's what he taught me. One of the first things he taught me when he taught me a little bit of shooting was that grapevine and how to get that foot. And that's I won a whole lot of damn shoots that way, just getting that foot, man. <laughs> that was the end of it. It's over. So yeah, made it easy. <clears throat> hey, Michael, I got well, some questions. If you don't mind, I'll jump in. Yeah, go ahead, Bo. Oh. Hey, I, we was talking about Bo James here, Charlie and Ron. Great talking to you guys. Hey, uh, Bo. We was talking about, you know, your family in, in the Gulf Coast, but the last 25 years I've spent researching the family here in East Tennessee where I live. And I want to go back to what something Charlie was talking about earlier about your family and the trickle-down effect. But I've got an article here in front of me from 1951, Kingsport, Set the, at that time set the attendance record and made them put more bleachers in the auditorium down here in Kingsport. And it also set off a run of about 14 years of where they were doing almost sellout business every week. Main event, Gorgeous George and Herb Welch. Semi-main event, Charlie Carr and Lee Fields. Yeah. And they drew 1,325 people, according to the paper, and a town of about 30,000 people then. But they, 25% of the gate from the weekly matches in Kingsport went to the Parks and Rec. In Kingsport, there's still four or five city parks that were built because of the wrestling that your family put on here every week with Mickey Barnes. All and right, then I come to, yeah, and, and I come to find out, um, doing the research here, I'm in the 50s right now working on the 50s book. I've already got the 60s book out, which covered Lester's time here with Ron and Whitey and all those guys. But I come to find out that Herb and Mickey started and founded the Kingsport Boys Club, which is now a, a multi-million-dollar building with two gyms and all kinds of stuff. But they founded the first boys club here in 1950. And as I was going through the papers doing the research, I come reading through there, and it listed the first wrestling coach at the boys club, a young man by the name of Edward Welch. So you're, and one of one of his first students at the boys club was Whitey Caldwell. No, you're yeah. kidding. So no, I never and knew that, that. I never knew that either until I got into the reading the boys uh, clubs. I found the new, they had a weekly article talking about the boys club, and those names jumped out at me when I saw that. Your your family's fingerprints along with Ron and Don and Whitey, are still on Johnson City, Kingsport, and Bristol. You know, and this, everybody remembers Southeastern, but this is 23 years before you got here that your family was already here, and they funded the Boys Club, the Boy Scouts, the Parks and Rec, and I don't know how many of the armories around here, schools, civic clubs, all were running. Kingsport was a five-day-a-week territory here, and it was just, it's, it's fascinating to go back and see at one time or another, it seems like everybody in your family lived here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in East Tennessee, they did. Including you, including you, but most of them in Kingsport because uh, there was uh, different things I've seen, like Herb's name listed when he got a new dog. They thought that was fascinating, and they ran a little thing in the newspaper, and they printed his address of where he lived in Kingsport. 
You know, so it's that's, that's, it's amazing. I, I was, in fact, I lived there as a kid. Uh, I was born in Dyersburg, and, and around that yeah. same time frame, we lived in Kingsport. Yeah. We moved to Kingsport, that's, and I was probably three years old, around three or four wow. years old, and lived in Kingsport. They ran Bluefield, West Virginia, out of there. Yeah, yep, they, they sure did. Run, run into Bluefield. They ran some of those Virginia towns. They, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and they ran. I don't know. They might have run all three of the cities. I don't know what they did back yeah, in those they days. Ran, exactly. They ran. They uh, ran Kingsport on uh, Wednesday, Johnson City on Tuesday, Bristol on Thursday. Twenty mile triangle, and all three of them, them towns that close together were doing business for years. That's crazy. You know? It's crazy, and it's amazing. Yeah, there, I give, believe give that me... when I was there back there, Bo, when I was been there in the seventies, well, I believe we wrestled in the Parks Building in Johnson City then, didn't we? Yeah, same building. They just tore it down two years ago. Uh, they built a brand new, multiple pers- uh, purpose building behind it. Nobody uses it, it seems like. But that old Legion Street done. wreck, boy, that swimming pool behind there, that was magic on Tuesday nights, you know. <laughs> yep, yep. Went uh, down Venice a whole lot of Tuesdays I spent there for sure. So that's amazing. Uh, yeah, my family goes way back there, I know. And uh, all of us, all of us, Dad, uh, Lester, uh, the Fields boys, every one of them were young guys, and they all made that pass through there. And uh, right after they left there, they went to Mobile. Uh, Dad went there first. Lester came down later. Uh, the Fields boys came down in the late 50s. Uh, you know, and it just, they migrated. They went from one area to, they all kind of hung out with each other. And I can remember what? when we had that farm there in the late 50s, uh, yeah. they would all come and party on the weekends. On the weekends, on Friday night, Saturday night, they would come and spend the night and cook out and hang out the next morning. I remember Dad had a frying pan. It was probably four feet across, and they would put five dozen eggs in the frying pan when they were having breakfast in the morning. They would cook it out all over a fire, over a log fire. I mean, those guys, those boys spent a lot of time together back in those days. Family was really close your dad, back then. <clears throat> your dad used to have rodeos on that on that ranch in Loxley, too. Same one, same one. So I mean, big yep. time rodeos. I bet I've seen all kinds of stuff happen. I was part of all that. I was there for Easter one one time, and they had me and Rob and Jimmy hide the eggs, Dad. And uh, we went over and dug dug holes and buried them and hung them up, stuck them up in the top of pine trees. And it was like 2,000 eggs, and they found about 10 eggs. Everybody was screaming, this is the biggest pony trap, man. Nobody, all these kids out there trying to find eggs. And we, Dad said, what the hell did you do with the eggs? I said, oh, we hit them. You said I had them. We hit them good. I just just thought of a name of that. You talking about Dyersburg, a name that we haven't brought up yet that was a part of that group too. Was what I call a branch Welch was uh, Bunk Harris. Oh yeah, Bunk. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. I got a lot of stories on Bunk too. Bunk is a good. You're talking about a bear. Roy Roy terrorized Bunk with Ginger with his bear. I mean, he did some horrible things to Bunk. That's in my stud cast, too, coming up. I mean, his Bunk just was, Roy was a, just, just drove him absolutely crazy. Turned the bear loose on him a couple of times. Just crazy stuff, you know. So it's like, you know, and what, Roy what was, was a nut. Yeah. What was the differences between promoting the Knoxville end and, and, the, and the Gulf end? Because did, did the Gulf Coast did the Gulf Coast have anything that could compare to Bloody Harlan, Kentucky? 
<laughs> no, no, they didn't have any. They didn't have those kind of towns. I was like, well, Panama City. Panama yeah. City, yeah, I got to Yeah, Panama City. I got hurt worse in Panama City than I ever got hurt in a ride. I mean, so Panama, I'd say, was just right in there with Harlan for darn sure. But that East I Tennessee area was dangerous. Man. I, I run a yeah. lot of Kentucky towns now. We got TV there on 57, same station you was on for years. We're running the same building, same towns, still doing pretty good business over there. And I tell people when we go from East Tennessee to go over there, I say, get ready, because we're going into the, the land that time forgot. And it's it's like going back in time over there. Harlan Hazard, they're, they're still wild and rowdy. Oh, man, that's a crazy area up there. Uh, one of the great stories about Ron Wright told me one time, he says, he said, uh, Ron, you know how he talked anyway. He said, Ron, you know, he said, I was up here one night in Hazard. He said, Donnie is in the ring. And he said, I'm standing that next to the sheriff. And he says, the guy on the far side of the building gets up, he pulls out his gun, and he shoots twice into the ring. I said, are you kidding me? He shot, he shot. He said, yeah, he, he shot in the damn ring. And he says, uh, he said, Donnie and the guy got out, whoever it was, and they went underneath the ring. And he said, I turned to that sheriff, and I grabbed him by the shoulder. And I said, and he said, the guy still stood up. He said, he didn't even sit down. He had his gun in his hand. He had it still pointed at the ring. And he said, I told him, I said, look at that guy. He's got a gun. And uh, and he said, the sheriff told him. He said, the sheriff looked up there, and he says, hey, he goes, uh, that's old John Smith. That boy's a hell of a shot. If he'd want to hit one of them guys, he'd hit him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the deal. And I asked Ron, I said, well, what did he do? Did he go get him? And he said, hell no, he didn't even throw him out. He sat down with his gun in his pocket. <laughs> and I said, was you working next? And he said, hell yeah, I was working next. I said, did you get any heat? Hell no, I didn't get no heat. <laughs> this guy going to shoot me. <laughs> That's, so yeah, yeah, crazy towns up there. The, the stories how many that I've heard. You get hit with the chisel, Ron. What's that? I said, how many times you get hit with the chisel? Oh God, man! Uh, actually, <laughs> one time I've told that story too. Yeah, it's actually just one time, you know. But uh, I hit Ron with it a lot. Ron wanted to hit me with it all the time, and he would go. Uh, because cause I was the heel and he was the baby, and, uh, you know, and he would bring his chisel and he'd file that sucker while I'm in the dressing room, and then he'd go, Ron, I'm going to hit you with a chisel tonight. And I'd say, no, now, Ron, you, you know, I'm the heel here. I need to, you can't hit me with a gimmick, you know. What the hell? That ain't no good. Oh, yeah, I, well, I'm going to do it. I said, okay, all right, well. And then we'd talk about things, and then we'd go to the ring, and I'd see him go for his chisel. He ain't supposed to hit me, but I'd see him burn his back and get it, and I'd nail him from behind and take it away from him and hit him with it. And yeah. I did that about five times in a row. As like, finally, I had to give him his shot in the Coliseum one night. I said, okay, Ron, this is my turn. Go ahead. No, but that was a nasty little tool there. He he didn't care who got hit with it, just as long as somebody got hit with it. Oh yeah, yeah. He he came to Florida in seventy in seventy two, I think, and he spent been a week there. And he came in the first night in the dressing room uh, filing his chisel, and there was nobody nobody doing that type of stuff. There wasn't no blood back in those days. You were they were Jack Briscoe days. I mean, you wrestled, and uh. Everybody in the dressing room were looking at him filing the chisel, and they would go over there and say, what is that? 
well, that's my chisel. And he'd go, well, they say, well, what do you do with it? And they said, well, you put it on your hand there and you hit them. You know, you get a lot of juice. And I was like, so he, he, he kept piling this chisel for a whole week. And it came Saturday night. It was his last night there. And we was in Lakeland in the Battle Royal. And uh, he says, <laughs> he announces about the time we're going to ring. He said, somebody's going to get my chisel tonight, my God. I ain't come here all week to hang around here for not to chisel somebody. So he goes to the ring. And there's a guy named Joe Flaherty. He's a young kid. And he ties Joe Flaherty in the ropes. And he goes to the center of the ring, and he pulls it out. And uh, we all just stopped. Everybody in the ring just stopped like, what in the hell is he doing? And there, boy, Flaherty sees him coming, and he's just kicking and screaming like a baby. And then Ron gets him in the headlock, boy. Oh, damn, here goes my chisel. Bam, he snaps <laughs> Oh, man, that's Blood flew halfway across the ring. It was like, whoa, this guy's a trip. And I never saw him anymore for two more years, and then I ended up coming to Knoxville. And there I was. I I got introduced to the chisel. I saw the chisel a whole bunch. I think, though, you were talking about the uh, the mobile end of of Southeast. I'll tell you one thing that that Georgia, probably one of the most famous angles here in Atlanta was – the deal where Ole turned on Dusty in the uh, in the cage match, uh, and you yeah. know how long he built that up working as a babyface. Well, about a year before that ever happened, Mr. Fuller and his cousin Jimmy Golden did the same thing in Mobile. You know, Jimmy had been a heel, and and he and Ron had been going on for a long time. Then Jimmy left for a while and came back, and he was he was you know working clean and everything. And I mean, it, it was it was just beautiful the way it worked. Ron was having problems. Who was Ron? It was uh, Ron Bass, and uh, I can't think who no. the other guy was. But you brought yeah, in Jeff, Johnny Valiant, and then he he disappeared, and all this stuff. And and you know these guys kept jumping on Ron, and and the fans were literally going up to Jimmy and begging him, you know, go help your cousin. Go help. I mean, it, it just you couldn't have worked it any better. And then they had a double bull rope match in uh, in Mobile, and uh, Jimmy turned on on Ron in that match, and uh, I, that was the closest I ever came to seeing a, a riot during the southeastern days. Was that night in oh, Mobile? And it was in the big arena too. It was in the, it was in the municipal yeah. auditorium. It wasn't in the uh, Expo Hall. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we had some we had some good. Mobile was a dangerous town too. In fact, the first time I ever worked in Mobile, I got arrested. I, I hit yeah. a guy that night and got arrested yeah. and uh, taken to jail my very first time in Mobile. It was a dangerous town. And then we had a riot that night. It was me against uh, Bob Armstrong. And we had a riot at the end of the match. And I'd had a lot of people tell me about that, too. They said, Mobile, man, is a bad town now. you got to be careful there. And I guess I wasn't taking them really literally and. And, uh, boy, it was a best, nasty situation for me. It turned out to be a bad deal. Um, Tony Gonzalez, yeah. the medic, got stabbed there at least twice, probably more than that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of those towns, uh, Panama City, that's the worst riot I was ever in. It was. I've been in a bunch of them, but that was the worst I was ever in. And, uh that, you, well, did the you run and, the, the uh, Rainbow when you were uh, running Panama City? Yeah, because it was by the time I came to work for you, you had quit running Panama City. 
Yeah, we didn't run it very long. I mean, it was a it was a little bitty small building. I can't even remember what the name of it was. You know, Charlie? It was, the old, was, that Ball, it was the old Rainbow Roller Rink. Bowler yeah, Roller Rink is what it was. Yep. Same place yeah, Rocky had for years, and it's a it's a U-Haul it, place it was. now. It's still, the building's still there, but it's it's a U-Haul place now. Ron got yeah. cut bad there one night. Uh, a woman, a female, laid a tree Ooh. razor blade right into the bend of his arm. Yeah, and if cut I, if me I in while I was in the ring. Yeah, yeah, she came in the ring, yeah. and every time Ron's heart would beat, it would go blood Ooh. would go up into the light. And everybody mm. turned red. It, it, yeah, it, it was, was a good one. Oh, it was a nasty ride. And uh, David Schultz was in the ball people. David Schultz, <laughs> me and David Schultz, and we were wrestling Ricky and Robert Gibson. And uh, at the end of the match, it was so nasty that we fought back to the dressing room. And I used to, we had a lot of heat when we first went there. And I used to make all the heels stay until the last match was over because we had a ride practically every night for a while, first three months I was there. And uh, and when we went through the dressing room door, me and him went through the door. I was the last one through. And before I could close the door, seven knives, open knives, came through and bounced off the wall, slid across the dressing room floor. They were throwing knives. Mm-hmm. It was like, wow. I looked out the door, and there was bodies all the way to the ring. I don't know how many people were knocked out and laid out. It, I was like, all I could see was money being <laughs> lawsuits. I was like, oh, man, I'm finished. This is all over. <laughs> it, you know what? The funny part of the whole story that wasn't funny was the woman that that took that treat razor blade and did a little surgery on Ron. It was a cousin to Robert and Ricky Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. It was a relative of theirs. <laughs> it was a I, got, I got one better for you, Charlie. Back in, in six... In, in 1968, when when uh, Bowman and Turner were doing the intern gimmick in in, uh, in the mm-hmm. area, um, they were the Gulf Coast Tag Team Champions, and they had these old old belts that Don Fargo had made back in 1961. In fact, I own one of them now. Um, but they were coming out of the ring. Of course, they had Jerry Graham with them, so that was heat personified right there. They Ooh. were coming out of the ring in Mobile. And this guy ran up at him, and Joe took one of those belts. And those things, were they look, if you look at them, they look just like hatchets. And he swiped this guy and and just peeled this guy's forehead back. Come to find out that it was, it was his first cousin. <laughs> Joe's own cousin. But since he was working under the hood, the guy had no, no clue who he was. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this is... I'm going to tell a quick one, and this is this is in memory of somebody, and, and, and memory of four different people, because when we talked about the reunion a few minutes ago and telling all these stories about ribs played on, on, on guys and things like that, that's something that these guys today, we're talking about the big the big national promotions, and even, even the independents, uh, no offense, Bo, but these, these guys don't know what fun is and how to have it, but this was open mic time at that first reunion in Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> and Luke Fields, also known as Bobby Fields, told the story. He and Lee were working, in, and when you brought up Michael Lafayette, Louisiana, Lafayette, whatever it is, this happened in a town outside of there that had just, it was like a primitive old cow palace type deal with uh, showers that were, inoperable 
and and Lee and Weren't Bobby they all? were <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> this, this was a bad case here. It was a bad. It's worse than the Farm Center in Dover. But they were working <laughs> against Don and Ron Carson, aka Dick Murdoch. You know who? Dick Murdoch. Dick Murdoch. Yeah. Well, I think Carson and Murdoch, even in those days, liked to have a little bit of. Uh, beverage before they got in the ring and Lee got a hold of a big well, pretty good sized green frog that was on the shower curtain in that old dressing room and they go out there and start the match and they Bobby backs him over there in the corner and Lee makes a tag and Lee drops that frog down Don's tights and they said he went absolutely crazy. And all the people in the building could it's alive, it's alive. <laughs> <laughs> he runs out of the building back to the dressing room and leaves Murdoch there in the ring with, with the field boys. But, I mean, they used to pull some of the stories they would tell at those reunions back in the 60s that they would pull on each other were just crazy, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was terrible. Yeah. That's about like uh, going after Armstrong with a rubber snake. He tore the oh, yeah. room up in, in Gainesville, Georgia one night. <laughs> I've seen Billy him tear Spears, several dressing Billy rooms. Billy Spears threw, threw a dead snake over the, dre- the top of the, they, the the dressing room in this place. They were just four plywood walls. They didn't really even have a roof. And Spears walked by with a snake that he he'd run over or something to come across on the way to the town. And uh, he brought it in there and, and uh, tossed it over the top of that that uh, dressing room door, and it hit the floor, splat. And Armstrong looked around. You know how how afraid Pep is of snakes, anyway. He tore the <laughs> tore the dressing room down, <laughs> trying to get yeah, out of he, there. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. I've seen he him. I've seen him do. I've seen him go nuts over snake. Uh, one time, him and Rob were leaving Savannah, Georgia, and they were in this girl's car, and she's going to take them to the airport. And they're flying back to Atlanta, and and Bob's all sweaty because they didn't have a chance to take a shower. <clears throat> they were trying to get to the plane, and he's in the back seat of the car. Rob goes in there, and then decide they're selling these little plastic snakes. So Rob buys this little plastic snake, and he goes, and Bob's got the window down. She don't have any air conditioning in her car. He's got the window down. And Rob comes walking by the side of the car, and Bob's sitting in the back seat, and he start, he just throws that snake right on top of it. And because oh. he's all sweaty, it sticks to him, right? It sticks to oh. his chest. <laughs> so he grabs it, and he starts throwing it up in the air, and it hits the roof. It comes back and falls on him again. And he goes throwing it up, and it comes back again. So he starts kicking. He, he's trying to get his feet up. So he gets. He kicked her front seat out of her car. He breaks it oh. off from the from the dam, just kicks the back of it until the bolts come out of where it's bolted into the floor and uh, and just kind of walks his feet up on top of her roof, tears all of her stuff off of her roof, off of her roof. I mean, he destroyed her car in about three minutes. <laughs> the girl was just screaming at him, you idiot, what are you doing? What are you doing? He's, oh, he's, he's dangerous around snakes. He was really bad about that. Don't, don't I'll tell you somebody that was a classic river that that you'd never think of it because he was always so so kind of quiet and and off to himself was Ken Lucas. God, Ken Lucas could pull some. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, I love him. 
Ken was a great guy. He sure yeah, was. He was. He was a great guy to be around too. What a good guy. Some some of my fondest memories was growing up in high school, going and seeing he and Jack Briscoe work one hour in the farm yep. center, and then yeah, come back come back a month later and work ninety minutes in the farm center. Now I don't I don't know two other guys. Ron, you, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know two other guys in the business that could do that in the summertime, but they did it. Oh, man. Especially in the farm summer, center. I, yeah, that's a damn hot building, man, in the summertime. Yes. Me, you got a story about me and Harley there, too, Charlie. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a nasty you building for that. <laughs> no, I don't want you, you to tell it, but you're probably going to tell it anyway. No, I I was going to shave a little time off the match of an hour because it was 100 degrees in the building. Harley told me, he said, if you shave one minute off of that match and that wimp gets by, he said, I'm spending the night at your house tonight and I'll kick your ass. So Ron kept looking over at me. How much time? How much time? And 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 uh he was taken I think you had to go to uh Sacred Heart Hospital and get a little little fluid in you, didn't you? Oh, I think I lost nineteen pounds in that match. I think I weighed Ooh, right before geez. I went in. I wanted to see how much you could lose in one match. Yeah, you I thought I got nineteen pounds in one match. It was it was pretty damn hot in there, man. It was pretty nasty. What? That was a that was a great you, building though. God, that was a great building. Oh yeah, I won't tell one more pet story uh, on the snakes. We were doing a personality profile in 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 the uh, Dothan TV in Channel Four, and uh, it was we were reviewing some tape, and this was right when Brad was breaking in the business. So Brad was working. Brad was out there with his dad. And and I'm going over, we were specifically targeting Montgomery in this thing. You know, Ron, we used to do sometime a personality profile for each town to make it all fit with the cars. Yeah. We were, we were doing that kind of deal. And, and Red Holland Show played on Saturday afternoons at about 2.30 or 3 o'clock at that time on Channel 4. Wayne Register, bless his heart and bless his soul, was, was up there directing. And uh, I said, Let, let's go to the Montgomery Center now and take a look at the, at the match involving Brad Armstrong and whoever was his partner. And Bob was there, you know, because Bob was coming in as his, as his partner. And about <laughs> that time, Wayne hit the wrong button. And and that day on Red Show was the Op JCs promoting the Rattlesnake Rodeo. And about the time he pressed the button, here, here's a guy in the parking lot of the store down the road from the station throws a garbage can load of rattlesnakes toward the cameraman. Of course, he had it zoomed in. Nobody was in danger except, God rest his soul, and this goes back to how many we've lost, Brad. Brad gets run over by his daddy getting out of the building. Bob (laughs) went out, smoked a half pack of cigarettes, and hyperventilated for about 30 minutes before we could get him back in the damn building. That is a true, he'll, he'll verify that, but just looking at him on TV would would scare the bejesus out of, out of uh, Bob Armstrong. 
He hated it. Yeah. yeah, I gave him a present one time. It was his birthday, and I called him over to my house, and I had a shoebox, and I taped, I had <laughs> stapled a snake to the inside of the shoebox oh, when you opened it up, right? And I said, Bob, you know, I said, I really love you, man. It's your birthday. You know, I just want to give you something special for your birthday. <laughs> and I had a glass towel, coffee table. And uh, he's sitting there on the couch, but, and there was a glass coffee table right in front of me. And I had the shoebox sitting on the coffee table. And I said, you know, I really love you, man. I give him a hug on the neck, the whole deal, you know, and here's your birthday present. And he took that top off of it, and he stomped my glass table. Glass broke all over my damn living room. <laughs> he was flying out the door. God, I'm lying. I should have known that. <laughs> should have known that wasn't going to work. He was a mess with them snakes. Uh, he still is. Talked to him earlier yeah. this week. He do, he's doing great. He's doing great. He uh, had mm-hmm. to have a little bit more surgery on his legs, but everything is is looking good. And, you know, we got so many guys. Going back to what you said, Ron, this this program is to to celebrate the legacy of a family that created a. I actually created an industry and a business that, that was great to a lot of people, and not only great to a lot of people making a living, but also entertained literally millions of people all over this country and in other countries as well. And uh, we need to take time, like Ron said, going to reunions and going to other things, and we see that uh, we're, we're in pretty good health. Think of those who are not, and... Uh, pull for one another because uh, we're the only friends we're ever going to have. And uh, we all, We're the only ones going to understand each other, that's for sure. That's well, in this, yeah. in, this bit, in this business, we are exactly correct, but uh, there is a special kindred not only, and I've learned this through going to these reunions, not the Mobile reunion, but the other, the other night in Dothan, the Continental Reunion. The fans are also right there with us. And it's the oh, yeah. fans, I think, oh, yeah. a lot of times, Ron, that make us go back and think of some of the things that we have forgotten. And Ron and I, playing off of each other, I know in the last few months, have remembered and taught each other things that we did. And we didn't, we didn't take time to remember because we were too busy, you know, getting the job done, and we really had no idea what kind of event we were creating or a community we were creating with the fans while we were doing all this. You get where I'm coming from? I know exactly what you mean. Definitely. I I did something, uh, you know, in in, uh, Stubcast, the last one I did, or one that's going to be coming up, and I sat down and started thinking about Roy, and uh, between 1945 and 1965, actually he was in business longer than that, but he was in business for those 20 years. And they had a big old territory. They ran three towns a night, uh, six nights a week. That's 18 shows a night, 18 shows a week. They averaged about 3,000 people, and that's probably very conservative because he had a lot of big towns like Birmingham and Memphis and Nashville and uh, Chattanooga and <coughs> Knoxville, those type of towns. And uh, at 3,000 people a night with 18 events, it's 54,000 people a week went to wrestling. 
And if you at times that, times 20 weeks, there's like 1,060 weeks, that's 54 million fans bought tickets wow. in that 20 years that yep. Roy was in business. Now, that's just a you phenomenal know. amount of, <laughs> you think about that, 54 million tickets were sold. Yeah. And probably 20 million of those were fans that had never been seen it before, never been introduced to it before. It's just really staggering at how many how how much how many lives were touched by by what he was what he tried to do and what he did, you know. And he really started all this stuff, especially the stuff in the South. Uh, Twelve states he was in at one time. Twenty five percent of America he was running, and uh, <clears throat> it's really amazing that what he what he was able to accomplish. And um, I feel uh, just honored to have been part of the damn family and just have an opportunity to do what little I've been able to do as compared to something he did. And my dad, you know, I'm going to do the same thing when I start figuring his thing at the end and figure out his numbers. I think it will surpass Roy's. Because well, he, you look he's, at the TV. <laughs> the TV aspect yeah. that came in in your dad's days as opposed to Half of half of your granddad's days, you were talking about. There was no TV, and then oh, yeah. right. all of but all of buddies from sixty 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 one on. There, there was TV shows involved in all of the towns, and you start multiplying that out. It's just uh, it's it's phenomenal how many how many lives it took in Dothan. And I want you to tell the the, the story about I, I know. At one time, Dothan TV was pulling eighty-one thousand homes a week. That's homes. There might there might have been four to ten folks at somebody's house. What? But but the world stopped, and folks watched Gene Reagan wrestling and Red Hot yeah. on Saturday afternoon. And then in Knoxville, in Knoxville, tell that story, Ron. Knoxville in uh, 1978, I had the manager of the station, the sales manager brought me in and used to show me the Arbitron book. And he slid it across the desk to me. It was the July book in 1978. And uh, he said, Ron, look at that share. And uh, we had, there was four television stations in the market. And at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, in competing with the college football, we had an 80 share. 80% 80 of the homes watching TV at 2 o'clock was watching us. He said, I've never Hmm. seen numbers like that, Ron. He goes, that's just unbelievable. He says, there's no way anybody will ever beat those numbers. And, you know, so there's a lot of people that really enjoyed it and got into it. And and the fans are still there. That's what what I'm finding out now. You know, doing what yeah. I'm doing, the fans are still out there by the thousands and thousands. And uh, well, there's it's, it's, people it's, like it's me. Wonderful. That, there's people like me that grew up watching Southeastern and Continental that fueled what I wanted to do for a living. And I praise the Lord, it's the only job I've had. First job I ever got when I was 14, thanks to Bob Polk and Ron West, was selling programs, putting up the ring for Continental Wrestling. You know, there you go. And this, you know, oh, you're you, older you than just, you that, just, Bo, 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 you're older. <laughs> I'm an old soul. <laughs> I'm an old soul. Time out. Time out. Yeah. Ron, get, get his get his driver's license. He's older than <laughs> <laughs> Bo for Ronnie. Yeah, it don't sound right, does it? 
Yeah, that something don't figure out in that deal. I, yeah. I, I'm about half asleep, but that woke me up there, bro. <laughs> uh, but uh, but here, here, I think, Charlie, I think you and Ron both deserve a pat on the back for the happiness that you guys brought people watching that TV. Um, I didn't get to see Charlie until the Continental Era here in East Tennessee, but I still have probably the biggest collection of videos from the Southeastern and Continental Territory, and I still like to watch them. And you guys, this many years later, people still watch them all over the country and enjoy it. Well, they, do, they, ask, they ask the question, why can't you do it again? And I want to go to Ron on this. And, and you made a statement, uh, you know, I think it was at the reunion, some people were talking. I, I was asking you, do you think it would could ever be done again? And you said no. And the reason you said no is why, Ron? Oh, yeah, well, you just can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, you know. I mean, I just don't think uh, – I think our boy up there in New York uh, just kind of really stuck the dagger in her for good. And, uh, you know, that's a darn shame, you know. And I don't have a problem. I don't I don't waltz around his name, you know. I kind of say it, say it like it is, and the way I see it is, is uh, that's the reason it will never be the same. And uh, nobody will ever get it back there again because uh, one greedy guy decided he wanted to do it all and then do it his way, and his way was not the right way. Too bad that somebody Amen. else didn't have that opportunity. You know, David Schultz, David Schultz and I, a few years ago, David came through Dothan, and my oldest son that I remember Ron held as a baby, who is a, a musician now, Brantley, he kept score for David and I. We started talking about all the guys in the business that we had worked with or knew. And, Bo, you can, you can, you can appreciate this, and so can Michael. Everybody in here can. How many people we knew that worked in the business? And I realized Don Fields was injured in a car wreck. Duke Miller got killed in a car wreck. These are, these are Gulf Coast legends of people mm-hmm. we know. It was, it was dangerous running up and down the highways in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But we started counting, and this is no joke. We counted over 40 wrestlers mm-hmm. that we knew that are dead before the age of 40, and none of them were killed in a wreck or in a plane crash. Nope. And yeah. you, you got to look, and, and none of them, some of them came through here, but they died when they went up to the Northeast, Ron. You know it as well as I do. One of the greatest yep. workers of uh, R- Rick McGraw was one of them. Rick McGraw is one I, I was about mm-hmm. to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You, know, you could sit here and start naming them over and over again. And uh, the almighty dollar, when somebody gets to the gates on Judgment Day, uh-huh. they're going to have to answer, they gonna have to, answer yep. to that. And I'm not, I'm not being self-righteous or anything, but, you know, it's going to it's going to be a day of reckoning for a lot of folks, yep. and, that, and those, that man up yonder is going to be one of them. But uh, and yep. I, I just uh, I get mad every time I think about it, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I hate to do this, but we are out of time. But but before we go, uh, Ron, tell everybody again uh, what you've got going: your websites, your Facebook pages, everything. And Charlie, you you can. Tell about the project that you two got going together. Okay. Uh, my, my website is pretty simple. It's ronfullertennesseestud.com. Uh, 
And uh, I'm on Ron Fuller Welch on Facebook. Uh, I'm at Ron Fuller Welch on Instagram, Ron Fuller Welch on on Twitter. Uh, and uh, just go to that website, ronfullertennesseestud.com, and click on uh, Studcast and, and uh, enjoy yourselves. I hope people come along for the ride because uh, I think it's uh, something different. Nobody's doing it ever. Nobody's ever done it. Most of these podcasts are two guys talking to each other about it, but this is just me, and it's just history. It's it's the real thing of what it was all about, and, uh, you know, I'd like uh, people to take a listen to it, and uh, if they like it, tell your friends about it, and uh, yeah. I think, uh, I think uh, uh, I'm going to be educating a lot of people about uh, the sport that they had no idea in a way that knows they had no idea that uh, I was involved in, or my family either. Well, I highly uh, recommend Ron, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and all, something that adds to that on Ron's part, they will be offering a little bit later on uh, maybe as many as five uh, stud casts together on CD. And we'll, we'll, I'm working on a, on a thing now to put those together where people can have them and uh, – Go back and listen to part of them, and we're going to try to get them printed up with Ron's logo on there, the picture of the stud with a cowboy hat, and be something that people might want to, to give for a gift at Christmas time. But it would be something you can remember uh, the old days by. And, you know, I noticed at one of the last, the last reunion, I'll do this right quick, the age group that was there, uh, Ron noticed it too. They were anywhere from 8 years old to 80 years old. A lot of them were mm-hmm. watching wrestling on their uh, on, on their little phones and iPads and stuff like that. But it was older people introducing a younger generation to what it used to be like. And I think that's great. I think it needs to not only Ron tell the story, but there be something to remember it by. Ron and I are working on a project, on a documentary, on a, on a DVD that tells a lot of the story, not quite as many of the stories as that Ron will tell on the stud cast, but we're also going to put some vintage video of uh, wrestling matches, including some of Lester in black and white, uh, Buddy taking a, giving a good drop kick to some folks in, in Memphis. And we're just doing it uh, because it, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's a story that has never been told and it needs to be told. And to all the fans that supported us through the years and still do, God bless each and every one of you. We appreciate you. We know what you're there, you were there for, and your part was the most important part of something we call pro wrestling. Thank you. Yes, sir. I, I, yeah. I, I, I second that, Charlie. Well said. Oh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Facebook both of you by number in case you need some video that you may be okay. looking for. Yes. I'll, I'll send both, you, both of it to thank you. Thank you, buddy. You're very welcome. Great. Great. We appreciate you, man. Yeah, thank you guys. Well, Bo, thank I you. appreciate you you coming on with us, and uh, appreciate uh, the time that you filled in with me. If I haven't told you before, I'm telling you now. I I thank you so much for keeping this this alive when when I was struggling to stay alive myself. Okay. And I was happy Mr. to do. Glad, Mr. Fuller. Uh, this has been an absolute honor. This has well, been thank you very much. This, it's been, this it's has been, been a, a great pleasure. I really enjoyed out. it. All right. Was, uh, I really let me tell you, Ron, but uh, uh, let me make an offer to you since I am the, the Gulf Coast historian. If you need any information or anything from, from those days when your dad was down there, even into when Lee had it, 
up until you bought it, you know, reach out to me. I'll, I'll, I'll help you any way I can with it. I appreciate that very much, and uh, and I probably will be contacting you for sure. All right, sounds good. All right, guys, well, I normally t- tell everybody we'll get together and do this again one more time next week, but that is not the case. But I thank everybody who has listened to us over the years, and, I again, I highly recommend you go back and listen to the archives of of, of going back on almost 10 years. You, you'll learn a lot. You'll laugh a lot. You might even cry a lot, but uh, – it's been fun, and I appreciate everybody that appreciate everybody that has reached out to me over my years doing this, and have let me know how much you've appreciated it, and that that means the world to me. But anyway, at that point, I'll just say good night, everybody. Good night. God bless. Good night. Goodbye. God bless. Good night. We thank you for listening to this broadcast. Production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.